This week starts with a quick blog post called Respiratory Philosophy, which is a short summary of the book Atmospheres of Breathing. We'll read a couple of sections from that book in this semester, starting with the introduction. The introduction to that book lays out the plan for the book, which is to create or think about how to create a new genre in philosophy, which they're calling a respiratory philosophy, by thinking about breathing and thinking together. The authors of the introduction point out that Western traditions or European-derived traditions have, as they say, entered an age of oblivion of the breath as a philosophical topic or principle. So in this introduction, they'll summarize some uh, European philosophers' uh, attitudes toward the breath or toward breathing, pointing out that respiratory philosophy, breathing philosophy, or breathful philosophy, as they're calling it, seem to be absent in many of the key uh, European philosophical thinkers. And so the authors are asking, what kind of philosophy would there be if we were to think about breathing or respiration alongside of the other topics um, commonly addressed in philosophy. The authors ask, um, how would we understand the relation between thinking and breathing or philosophy and respiration, and how would this be different from other kinds of philosophies or ways of thinking? So these are the topics that are addressed in this book. In addition to summarizing the attitudes of a few Western or European uh, theorists, the authors of this introduction also address some other theorists, such as um, on page XII, for example, um, the Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi, um, who they say is the philosopher of breath. Or the philosopher of breathing. So Zhuangzi, they say, um, is someone that we can take some guidance from in thinking about what respiratory philosophy might mean. And the authors discuss that um, in a bit more detail. Before moving on then to another non-European philosopher named Kahn, for whom breath is also a central object of consideration in philosophical thinking. Kahn writes, this is on page XV, Kahn writes, people ordinarily think of breath as that little air they feel coming and going through the nostrils but they do not think of it as the vast current which goes through everything, that current which comes from our consciousness and goes as far as the external being, the physical world. So this is one of the main themes of this class also, which is to think about how there's a continuity between breath and air. This is brought up also in the introduction to this book on the next page, XVI, uh, where the authors say, um, right at the top of the page, they could say they're asking the question of what would this new philosophy, this respiratory, respiratory philosophy, be like? And they say breathing is openness, that is respiratory openness, a perpetual opening to the atmosphere of air. The air itself is also pure openness, as in itself it obstructs nothing. Things around us obstruct us, as, for example, they block our vision, movement, or speech. But the atmosphere of air is pure, open freedom, freedom, free from any obstruction. So this is one of the key um, ideas that I want you to hang on to for this semester, 
especially as you're doing your writing, as you're moving around outside, and as you're taking photographs or videos, what we'll be looking for in those visual records, your visual documentation, is uh, images of air, images of you know that which we can't see. So where is it as we walk around our daily lives, can we actually see air or wind or breath? Um, this is a theme in certain kinds of philosophy. Um, for example, on page XVI, farther down on the page in this introduction, the authors write about Merleau-Ponty and his phenomenology of perception, where he defines true philosophy as the task of learning to see the world anew. So that's what we'll be doing in this class, is learning to see the world anew by looking for evidence of air and breath around us, both in our bodies, how does it move in and out of our bodies, what does it do to our thinking as it moves in and out of our bodies and en enlivens our bodies, and then where do we also see it in the world around us, in the atmosphere, where do we see air, and how does it enliven the earth and our presence on the earth in the same way as it enlivens our bodies. So the authors say farther down on that page, to see the world in a respiratory way would mean to see it within the atmosphere of breathing and perhaps to see it according to the breath or to see it in collaboration with breathing. So this is your task for this semester is to learn to see the world in this new way as we learn uh, different practices of breathing and study different ideas from different cultures around the world about uh, breathing and air and uh, the empty space around us. Next book on your list for this week is a really amazing uh, book called Wind Life Health. And you'll read the introduction and uh, the first chapter from that book. This book begins um, in its introduction by saying that while wind on first consideration may be thought of as a natural phenomenon, as external air, so, and we have lots of words for that like breezes, squalls, whirlwinds, hurricanes, cyclones. Wind is also an internal phenomenon, also manifests as breathing or internal bodily winds or energies in some cultures that circulate through veins or appear in the form of sneezes and coughs. So this book is starting with this external phenomenon of wind, then expanding that exploration to look at the internal experience of breathing and looking at an enormously rich range of ideas about wind and ways of being in wind uh, both meteorological winds, but also embodied experiences of wind in social and historical contexts. So on page two, the authors of the introduction point out that they are also looking at core concepts of nature and culture and providing a further anthropological critique of the nature-culture dichotomy that's long been entrenched in uh, European and North American thought. So there's a broad historical and ethnographic approach to cross-cultural uh, international exploration of ideas about wind and breathing in this book. 
focused on um, phenomenology of winds, like our previous book on the philosophy of wind, with a special emphasis on the nature and culture phenomenon of wind and its role as the foundation of life. So on page three, the authors provide some of the core questions that motivate their explorations in this book, such as who experiences wind and how, what is the relationship of outside wind to inside wind, who has an interest in wind and in controlling and binding the winds, doctors, priests, farmers, or ascetics, and why? What are the ways in which such binding or capturing of wind is conceptualized and operated? So these are the questions that we'll be exploring in the chapters that we read from this book, and also the uh, questions that we'll be looking at throughout this um, semester in our readings. So I'll let you take a look at this um, essay in this introductory section of this book it really has an amazing uh, summary of the different chapters in the book, different uh, multicultural approaches to the topic. I'll draw your attention to a couple more passages on page nine, for example. The authors point out that wind connects the, wild, the wilderness to the hearth by moving beyond the body to within the body, from the dead to the living, from the quotidian to the divine. Wind connects people with people and people with the environment, near and far. So it's a connective force causing change, triggering events, and can be attributed to all sorts of effects inside and outside the body. This is something that we can think of sort of especially acutely in this uh, age of this global pandemic where disease is so obviously spread through breath, through the wind, through our breathing. Farther down on page nine, the authors again draw our attention to um, phenomenological writers like Merleau-Ponte and his phenomenology of perception. And um, I'd like to point out, as this is another sort of key theme of this um, semester, where he says, the authors say on page nine, um, every thought or every motivation is a response of the body as it participates in a sensuous world. So we'll be thinking in our practice and our reading and our writing and image taking this semester a lot about what it means to be embodied and to be enlivened in our bodies by breath or by wind, how it is that our bodies interact with wind and breath and are transformed by them. So some of the other philosophers, phenomenological philosophers here um, cited on page nine also talk about how the body is a generative principle of social practice in interaction with the world. As the body is immersed in the world and in wind, the notion of embodiment means a complete uh, encompassing processes of the mental within those of perception and participation. Wind can be remembered in the body and its perceived effects transformed and reproduced. So this is something else I'd like you to think about as you move around outside in nature this semester, as you write in your journal, as you do your breathing practices. You'll be thinking about how wind and breath provide an exceptional sensory experience.
And I think the rest of this chapter will give you some more ideas and also some vocabulary for all the different ways that you can think about wind and breathing and your interactions with them in um, all kinds of new ways. On page 13, the authors of this introduction point out that they will be focusing in this um, book, as we will in our semester, on medical traditions in particular that use wind um, to describe physiology and pathology. So in Asian traditions, such as Ayurveda, we'll be thinking about prana, breath, and vatu, wind. In Chinese medicine, we'll learn something about qi, the, the breath, and feng, the wind. In Japanese medicine also, ki, the breath. And in Tibetan medicine, we'll read several articles about lung, the concept of wind that um, is also tied to the breath and treated by different kinds of breathing practices and different manipulations of the external and internal winds of the body or breath of the body. So that's a summary of this uh, introductory chapter to this book. And what we'll do next is look at the first chapter of the book by Tim Ingold called Earth, Sky, Wind, and Weather. The last article that you'll read for this week um, is really pretty exciting to me. I think these are some pretty radical ideas, and I'd like to just start by uh, reading the beginning of this chapter for you. Tim Ingold writes, We all know what it feels like to be out in the open air on a windy day. Yet once we try to pin it down within established categories and conventions of thought, no experience could be more elusive. What is the open air? Does it circulate in the sky or the atmosphere? Are these the same or different? If the atmosphere surrounds our planet and the sky arches above our head, then in what shape or form can the earth exist in relation to the sky? And if we're out in the open world of earth and sky, how can we simultaneously be in the wind? How, in other words, can we inhabit the open? If we can do so only by containing it, then how does the wind still blow? So that's the introductory sentences of this uh, chapter. And what he's going to examine then is a way to answer these questions. And what I would like you to do as you sit outside and walk outside and feel the wind and learn to feel your breathing is to think about these kinds of questions for yourself. Tim Ingold writes, to feel the wind is not to make external tactile contact with our surroundings, but to mingle with them. In this mingling, as we live and breathe, the wind, light, and moisture of the sky bind with the substances of the earth in the continual forging of a way through the tangle of lifelines that comprise the land. So he says a little farther down on that same page, the process of respiration by which air is taken in by organisms from the medium and in turn surrendered to it, is fundamental to all life. So to inhabit the open, 
is to dwell within a weather world in which every being is destined to combine wind, rain, sunshine, and earth in the, continu in the, continu in the continuation of its own existence. So as you proceed your, uh, through this chapter, uh, you'll be asked by the author to kind of rethink some of the um, assumptions you might have about what the earth is, what the sky is, what air is. And I'd like you to hold on to those thoughts as we proceed through the semester and as you keep your journal and, and keep a image or video log of what you're seeing newly throughout the semester in your environment. On page 23, for example, Tim Ingold says, for human beings, the medium is normally air. Of course, we need air to breathe, but also offering little resistance, it, off it allows us to move about, to do things, make things, and touch things. It also transmits radiant energy and mechanical vibrations so that we can see and hear and it allows us to smell, since the molecules that excite our olfactory receptors are diffused in it. Thus, the medium affords movement and perception. So what I'm asking you to do this semester in your assignments, in your video taking, your image taking, your journal writing, and your final film project or image project is to find is to take images of that invisible air or to make the air visible, to make the breath visible in your body, in the bodies of others, as it intermingles with the air and as it is a continuous, as it is continuous with the air and the weather and all of the ways that we know the air outside of us. So for example, on page 26, Tim Engold writes, in the open, the medium is rarely, if ever, still. Almost always, it is in a state of flux. Sometimes these fluxes are barely perceptible. At other times, they're so strong that they can uproot trees and bring down buildings. They can power mills and send ships around the world. The general term by which we know them is wind. But how can we tell that it's windy? This is the question I'm asking to you this semester, and I'm asking you to show us, to show each other, to show yourselves, to show me how you can tell when it's windy or how you can tell where and when there's breathing. Tim Engel continues to talk about the experience of feeling a breathe, a breeze. You know, he says, how can we feel the wind without being able to touch it? And he's compelled then to recognize that feeling and touch are not merely alternative terms for tactile sensation. There's something quite different about them. Feeling, unlike touch, infuses our entire being. He says on page 27, it's not so much a way of making bodily contact with specific persons or things as a kind of inter interpenetration of the self and its surroundings a certain way the world has of invading us and our way of meeting this invasion. 